Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Today, I am really happy to welcome back to Life Beyond the Numbers, my first return guest, Steve Haynes out in Geneva. Steve, you're very welcome back to Life Beyond the Numbers. I'm thrilled to be the first returnee. It's great. And one of the reasons I've asked Steve to come back today specifically is because Steve has released a new book called Touch is Really Strange. Now, I don't think he thinks touch is really strange. I think it's the name of the series, the really strange series. But touch is maybe something we don't often think about and it can be undervalued or underestimated how important it is. So, Steve, tell me about touch. Yeah, I'm a body worker. That's a really powerful identity for me. My route into being a body worker is I actually came from working with people with mental health problems. And the idea that you can change your mind and anxiety and emotional state by relating to the body through yoga was a huge step for me in my late 20s. Shiatsu was my first way of of learning about touch. But the idea that I could change my whole sense of who I was, my sense of feeling safe, my experience of pain, my connection to my body, but someone else was supporting me to do that, not by talking, but by using skillful touch. That was such a radical thing to experience in my late 20s, early 30s. uh, And I guess I spent the last 25 years trying to get better at that. And the book is sort of a product of that inquiry, really. Mm. And I went to Africa to work back in 2003. And before I left, I had like an induction for first time overseas. And one of the pieces of advice we got was not to underestimate the power of touch Mm. which i think was fantastic because the guy who was talking to us was aware that we were leaving our families and friends and maybe our day-to-day experiences of touch behind but not to forget about it now through lockdown i think a lot of us may have not only lost touch with people, but lost being touched. Yeah, I think there's a nice phrase I came across when writing the book about the idea of touch as social glue. This idea that small casual gestures of a hand on the back or a hug or even shaking hands are actually fundamental to our sense of health and relationship and and not being isolated and alone. 
So, yeah, I think lockdowns really, really sharpened that up. Sounds like the trainer you were talking about already knew that because, you know, we're more likely to do that with family and close friends. You go to an alien environment and uh, the culture will be different. Negotiating the boundaries, you'll be a little bit more defended and uh, you will definitely get less hugs in those new situations. And people have definitely got less contact in uh, lockdown. It's uh, absolutely unequivocal. Uh, I think one of the most painful images for me around lockdown would be seeing people in old people's homes and their family outside a window and they're touching the window or even worse, the people who are in the process of dying and they're looking at an iPad and their families not holding a hand and stuff. That was absolutely heartbreaking. But I think uh, defining images now, I think, in our culture about how much touch is part of our relationship and we take that away and we lose something very important. What does it do for us, touch? If we say it's important, but how? Well, I'd aim quite high here. I think touch helps us feel real. One of the things I quote in the book, let's do a bit of Shakespeare. So there's a, is this a dagger I see before me? And Macbeth is, is having a vision of a dagger, but he can't clutch the dagger. And therefore he doesn't know if it's real. And I think Shakespeare's onto something. Absolutely. The idea that touch, there's many senses and many ways of receiving information, but touch adds a level of authenticity it's not the product of a fevered mind. It's not a product of my mind playing tricks on me. I can touch it. I can hold it. I can grasp it. I can interact with it. I can move it. And therefore, it's a notch up in the reality stakes. And I, I think our early experiences as human beings are really founded in touch. So our big journeys are, you know, initially we grow in a warm, wet environment. We go through this massive squeezing and pushing and struggle for autonomy through the birth canal, and then we're received by the touch of another. All of that primes our learning about shy, shape, speed, too much, too quick, not enough, getting support. All those concepts that are fundamental to being human, what is safe is actually founded not in words and contemplation, but in gestures of embodiment. So moving through the birth canal, being squeezed by another sentient human being, and then being received with hopefully slow, nurturing, gentle touch, even feeding as a gesture of touch. All of those are the root of learning about a body that has to engage with the world and is touched by a world, hopefully in a way that was safe and useful and wasn't too much. So yeah, absolutely. I would offer all our early learning experiences are rooted in touching the world and the world touching us and other sentient beings touching us. I love that, touching the world and the world's touching us. There's obviously a difference between touching an object and touching another human being. But I can see how both of them help us with the reality. What's the most important for us? Is it having the skin-to-skin touch is superior? Um, Well, I think we need good enough touch. There's lots of things that seem to help ideal growth or more optimum growth and you can approach that in two ways what's it like for babies who get more skin-to-skin touch and there's actually really really gold standard evidence now that they thrive better more emotionally attuned have richer immune systems and even at 10 years the studies are gold dust and for for preterm babies there's this thing called kangaroo care which has been a cheap worldwide intervention 
where preterm babies, if they're held against the mother's skin in a sling, a kangaroo sling, again, it's a cheap, low-cost intervention that saves preterm babies' lives. So on that level, yes, very clear evidence that human beings thrive better with safe touch. You can do the reverse as well. If you, the studies, the famous one is remaining orphanages where the children actually weren't orphans most of the time, just part of the communist or the, the framework of that country at that time was children were put in these uh, institutions and they didn't get touched and they were often left alone and isolated. But the research, uh, and it's been very well studied, the research indicates touch as one of the major deficits in their development. So yeah, positive touch, the experience of lots of touch predicts growth and the research from the remaining babies and, and other studies absolutely predicts that we children fare worse, develop mental health issues and physical health issues without touch. So yeah, it's an absolutely fundamental shaping experience. And the goal of touch really to help us feel safe, this sense of soothing, reassuring. I always think, you know, I had two gerbils as a kid and those two gerbils would curl up and, you know, just lying and all over it. And I actually still adore, I mean, pets are complex, but uh, we went to a flower shop recently and they were selling pets and we saw these like, I don't know, tens of hamsters and rabbits and whatever all curled in on each other. That fundamental mammalian experience of just feeling another heartbeat and the warmth of another body as nurturing and producing growth and feeling safe. That's a, that's a lovely image. And you use words like skillful touch, safe touch, because touch also has a bad reputation. Unfortunately, there's unsafe touch and people feeling unsafe when someone touches them. Yeah, so we start from this place that we have this need and, and it's a fundamental thing. So that's important. And then, however, uh, touch done badly because it's so important, is so intimate and so quickly escalates to something horrible. So even, you know, you imagine standing next to someone who's too close to you at a bus stop, someone you don't know, but somehow they're in your personal space. So they're not even touching you and they're generating lots of alarm signals because the space isn't negotiated. So we're exquisitely sensitive to other people and our distance to them. And there's this incredible shift in what neuroscientists call it our peripersonal space. It's basically the space that I can move and control. So if I wave my arms, that might be my peripersonal space. If someone steps into that, my threat detection systems go up and then someone's in my peripersonal space and they touch me without consent, absolutely, my alarm systems are going off. This is incredibly intimate, has lots more potential for changing me and uh, changing my physiology in ways that aren't, I'm not consenting to. So, yeah, how do we know this? Well, I mean, just partly examining our own experience is, is obvious, but the, the Me Too movement has been a landmark in terms of really documenting how much unwanted touch women have had to deal with. I remember I grew up with Benny Hill on a Sunday night and the, the tropes in Benny Hill of, uh, you know, men chasing women was, was laughable in the 70s to our, you know, horrible to look back at that really. And those many women had to negotiate that type of touch endlessly um, is the understanding now. And uh, that's very painful to realize. So touched on badly can really take us into places of threat and really massive stress responses that people manage 
people often have to laugh or negotiate with the powerful person so they have to appease and kind of that was okay because the consequences of naming it as not okay is even worse because you're locked in a power structure. So yeah, that, that's just really, really hard, isn't it? And anybody who has power in any shape or form, whether that's due to your social status or due to work status or due to your physical size and shape, you really, really need to uh, negotiate consent around touch and be aware how your touch might be received. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously in a work environment, you may just place your hand on somebody's shoulder and actually not have any intention behind it other than purely to touch somebody in passing. Yet for that person who's um, receiving the touch, it can be a whole different world. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's no easy answers to that because we need the touch and sometimes it can be the social glue. Uh, the social glue comes phrase from comes from basketball teams. If they touch each other more at the start of the season, there was a nice study that predicted their celebratory gestures of bonding and togetherness predicted that uh, they would perform better over the course of the season. So in social groups where there's an equality, touch is um, supportive and helps the process of working as a team. And clearly in work situations, that can be useful. But if it's not, if it's initiated by a boss with an agenda and there's no sensitivity to uh, gender dynamics and gendered roles, then, oh, my gosh, yeah, with the historical lens of Me Too, it's such a, a land minefield. Minefield, yeah. Minefield. <laughs> That's minefield, yes. Yes, no, 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 it is. And it's also like just shaking someone's hand. I mean, that is before COVID at least, that was in this part of the world, it's how we greet one another. And that is touching. Or if you're in Geneva, you get three kisses on your cheek. Yes, yes, yes. That was, I mean, both you and I, we met in Geneva. That used to flummox me for for a number of years, the whole two kisses, three kisses, four kisses at some people. But I was like, uh, always much happier shaking hands as a reserved English person at that point. But yeah, that gesture of, of it sort of, you learn something about them and it's a level of intimacy and acceptance and humanity uh, that's been socially useful for hundreds of years and we lose it at our peril, really. Totally. I know. I, and I must say the first person that I got to hug once lockdown lifted was just, it was an incredible feeling to hug somebody other than my partner. Not that it's been great having him, but, you know, just to be able to feel safe again. And there's a certain reassurance in a hug. Yeah, Uh, there's a a really nice, another element of hugging that's emerged. I was kind of aware of it, but again, wrote about it a little bit in the book, is uh, mom and dad hugs in the LGBT community. So there was one guy, particularly in one of the pride parades, he was an older man and offering hugs to younger men. And it became sort of uh, an ideal dad hug. And it went a bit viral and there were sort of uh, mom hugs and dad hugs, free hugs being offered and some really lovely writing around it and stories about acceptance from an elder who represented a parental figure who might have rejected 
and this sense of the hug as a transformational gesture of acceptance really came out of the the, the news stories and comments about the, those uh, free mom hugs and free dad hugs around the LGBTQ events in the States. Nice, really nice. Now, I have had hugs from people that have left me feeling cold. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? It is. So it's, I suppose, perhaps for them, hugging isn't something they naturally wanted to do or they don't feel safe. I don't know. Is there something behind that that as an experience that we carry around like from a bad touch earlier in life? Yeah, I think I mean, clearly there's the people have different preferences and people, some people are very comfortable hugging strangers and some people it's still, it's too intimate too quickly, too soon. And even though they taking part in a social group that's acceptable, it's still not an easy gesture for some people. I noticed I teach quite a lot. I organize uh, workshops around touch. And quite often in those situations, there's often an urge for people at the end, you know, five days, everybody's quite in a nice mood there's quite a lot of hugging goes on at the end but you notice even people who are learning touch some people still prefer to shake hands and still this idea of of hugging just it isn't right for them in that space and i've learned to really negotiate it and say it's fine to shake hands we don't have to to hug here even though it's quite a big part of the group will be doing quite a huggy thing uh, for some people just too much too soon and they're very careful about who they hug and that's absolutely fine mm. And one thing that really struck me when I read your book is we don't touch a part of a person. We touch a whole person. Yeah, so the strangeness of touch. So one of the approaches in body work has been, and and most Western medicine uh, has been to narrow down to try and be more precise in what you're doing. So... I'm a knee specialist, so I look at knees all days and I get very good at analysing meniscuses that are torn or ligaments that are, uh, are stretched or muscles that aren't firing. And that's useful information. But all of a sudden, I've specialised so much and I've got so focused and my philosophy is that structure is important that I stop seeing people and I just start interacting with knee number three on my Monday rather than knee number five. And I'm afraid I think that there's a strong element of truth in that. So there's a gesture away in in certainly pain that people are far more complex than their parts, than their knees. And actually, if we are dealing with what determines how painful a knee is or how much confident we are to use a knee, then we need to look at all the stories that person's carrying. So if someone has a story in their family that their mum had bad knees and it was arthritis and they're inevitably going to get the knees that their mother had, and also they have a story that they're scared or their knees are weak or they've been told that they've got the wrong shaped knee at some stage, blah, blah, blah. They've got all these other things that are sensitizing them. So the stories inside them and if you're just looking at the tone of the middle part of the knee, the vastus medialis, and trying to strengthen that without realizing that there's all sorts of other layers of story inside this whole person, then that's turned out to be much more effective to deal with the whole person. And I really like that because that takes us into this world of safety. Safety is the most important thing for human beings. And if people don't feel safe, 
And there's all sorts of stress responses that happen, not least tightening up or poorly controlling muscles around your knee and changing the stress hormones and inflammatory processes around that knee. So yeah, that gesture, when you're touching someone, if you just focus on the part, you're going to miss out on all sorts of other processes that are contributing to that person's experience of the knee. But unfortunately, that has been the theme in much of body work for for far too long. Yeah, the, it's life beyond knee number three and life beyond knee number five. What's the way forward then, Steve? Are people going to learn how to touch people properly or how to, for body workers, how to navigate that safe touch or that skillful touch? Yeah, that's hopefully the, the, the goal of the book is to make a plea for understanding the complexity of touch. So if we can backtrack a little bit, look at the science of touch. There's two big pathways, which we might call quick touch and slow touch. So for me as a body worker, I did something, I uh, was very focused on proprioception, the ability to map a moving body in space. So we could do that. I mean, hopefully your listeners might do this. If you hold your hand up and close your eyes and try and touch your finger to your nose. So many of us might miss the nose on the first go, but we, we negotiate. And if we practice, we get better at that. But that mapping a moving body in space is called proprioception. And that largely goes along quick A-fiber nerves that I liken to motorway nerves. They're quick and fast. And that was the type of touch that was studied. And that was the type of touch as a chiropractor I was taught to interact with. They needed to move the joint quickly or stretch the joint to affect those quick signals of proprioception to improve our proprioceptive capability. That's still a good thing. However, there's another type of touch. So let's explore that. It's called slow touch or effective touch. The effective is important because the slow touch triggers a whole emotional response. Let's do another experiment. If you hold your arm up and close your eyes, your arm is still, how do you know you have an arm? And that's quite tricky. If we take away the movement, the itch, the temperature, the flow, the weight, the essential armness of an arm, that slow signals, you can drop your arms now, folks. <laughs> Those slow signals are called interioception. And it's a slow bicycle pathways or country roads compared to the motorways. They go along thinner nerves uh, called C-fiber nerves. However, for every single motorway, there's seven country lanes. So you've got far more country lanes sending far more information. And this slow background tone of the body turns out to be really, really important to our sense of safety. So all the work I do is much more focused on interioception, this background tone of the body. And th this is part of the strangeness of touch. Quick touch is great. Please enjoy quick touch. But also if body workers come away from trying to stretch a muscle or move a joint quickly to just still hands touch or touch that supports the sense of weight or aliveness or flow, that helps relax the tissue tension so that blood vessels can open and people feel safe. They're not in a 
contracting, withdrawing response, they're in an opening and blood suffusing into the joint response, then that slow touch uh, can be really levered as an agent for good and really feeding into this need of safety. It's nurturing slow touch that promotes a sense of connection and well-being. So we don't touch quickly to change tissues. We touch slowly to change emotion and help a whole person feel safe. And then all sorts of other processes kick in, which will have this downward positive effect on, on your control and experience of your knee in, in our example. Is that helpful? Yeah. And there's a couple of things like the, the armness of an arm. I want to come back to that. But the what about can you do it for yourself if you touch your neck or your shoulders you know yourself to calm yourself down is that touch yeah absolutely i'd say any touch is good so you can do rubbing and quicking but often people are let's say they've got a tight neck and they might be like really rubbing it hard or trying to stretch it in quite sort of quick ways that's not bad, but I would offer sometimes just kind of warming something up or just putting your hands, a still hand and sort of breathing and realizing, oh, my neck is tight and I might feel that there's something out of line or wrong with my neck, but then I might say I'm out of line and, oh, what, what's, you know, you can follow the metaphor, I'm stuck, I'm out of line, you know, I'm arguing more, I feel as I'm not being valued in my life, and maybe my neck is a little bit tight because of all these larger things, I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, but that sort of language and experience is only going to come if we pay attention a little bit more slowly, and we don't focus just on the quick structural positional type model, we focus more on our sensitivity. So a slow gesture of just a nice slow squeeze, that generates the slow effective touch a little bit more. Light touch where you're brushing. Uh, so just simple brushing up and down a whole arm very lightly and gently. I often say to my clients things like using a soft fluffy white towel after a shower and spend twice as long you know, you can rub it quite quickly, you can rub it quite slowly, but play with the different rhythms and try and focus on generating a sense of warmth, connection and aliveness, rather than just releasing tissue tension. It's not bad to release tissue tension, but if you find that sense of safety, then most of our contractions and stiffness will come away when we feel safe enough to relax and realize, gosh, I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders or that argument I had with my boss or my interaction with my child is like, I'm upset by that and I'm contracting in response to that, but we need a little bit slowness to, to find that space and touching ourselves slowly, gently with a focus of warmth and ease can take us into that space a little bit more easily than vibratory rubbing, poking, prodding type touch. <laughs> which sounds I mean those words are so different as well but you know I, I tried as a chiropractor and shatsu you know I used to stick my elbow into you know if 10 was a maximum pain I'd stick it into eight out of 10 and I've done plenty of the vibratory quick stretchy things it has a place but if you change the focus from local dynamics to whole people if you touch whole people rather than parts then you access this much more interesting space of complexity and personhood. And that's, that's a much more powerful thing to interact with, I think. Mm. And then 
the armness of an arm and I guess the legness of a leg it all sounds like getting to know your body better and being able to kind of fit your body which I'm not sure many of us know how to do you're absolutely right um many of the diseases of modern society there's a famous emotion researcher Antonio Damasio addiction persistent pain and emotions such as depression and anxiety can be rooted in disorders of feeling and here we have this beautiful dual meaning of the word feeling feeling as emotion love and uh, happiness and joy or sadness but also feeling as hot cold tight soft flowing moving as a body worker i often start with these more sensation type qualities of feeling how do you know you exist how do you feel the inside of your arm is it flowing is it warm and then we often move into you feel sad or absent or joyful as you know that or oh god when i think about my neck i think about my mum or i think about getting older i think about being shouted at i have this emotional level to the the feeling business uh we used that word last time didn't we the feeling business i've i've used it much more since that podcast so thank you so the feeling business is important and we can start i want to train all aspects of the feeling experience but primarily by being able to tune into slow feeling states inside a person the tissue states of warmth blood flow tingling aliveness weight but also the organ states of churning or releasing or sphincters opening or digesting or ruminating or the pulse of my heart or the expansion of my lungs these are background fundamental feelings and many of us just don't have a language for it and don't have um clear experiences of it if you most you ask most people to feel their heartbeat in my experience about a third to a half of people just can't tune into their own heartbeat and i i think that's sad we by tuning into our heart we have a barometer for how quick we're going how alarmed we feel and how joyful we feel but it's a skill to learn that feeling business and part of my job is to use slow touch so one say it's significant and two that you can interact with it and three it's a trainable thing and increasing your capacity to engage with your feeling states has dramatically uh, improved outcomes or predicts dramatically improved outcomes in terms of health and mood actually so if somebody's well, hopefully people are listening but for people that are listening to this if they're not sure about what we're just talking about now what is a good way to tune into your heartbeat or understand the armness of an arm yeah so i i'd say start collecting experience see yourself as a being an experiment it's like become a sommelier sommelier is a lovely word from wine tasting where you have these experts who can pontificate or uh, talk long and a long time about the different qualities they're experts at the process of taste so i want you to be a sommelier to your body but to do that we have to practice you start with really fundamentals how do i know what joy is that's a very hard question for many of us actually it might be walking in the woods last sunday or it might be that perfect holiday when life was amazing and you were loved up and everything was great but imagine lying on the beach and see what you can remember while well, the sun was on me it felt great 
it wasn't the, it was 1970s consciousness when sun was fun and I wasn't worried about cancer. <laughs> but, you know, the warmth, the sand, the sea, the sun, and like, what was my heart rate doing? What was my jaw doing? What was my back doing? Why did I feel alive and joyful? So we collect these ultimate experiences. It can be as simple as decorating a cake or walking your dog, something that you do that makes you feel alive, connected, creative, remember that and like what was my heartbeat doing or if you are doing something creative and you're enjoying yourself take a pause to a moment say what's happening in my belly what's tingling my left foot what's my back muscles like so we need to collect those experiences and you know part of my job is is helping people say find words for these experiences add labels to them taste them expand on them don't assume it's an easy thing so that's good collect optimal experiences and if you're in pain or you're suffering see if you can do the same thing realize there's a heaviness in my chest or if you're walking into your office and work feels really really heavy take a moment to realize gosh my shoulders are slumped my back is a bit tighter and i've got a churning in my belly as i approach this difficult situation or this difficult person so collect the difficult things, collect the good things, hopefully more good things than difficult things. And as your menu, as your language increases, you'll have more choices. This model of, of training our ability to feel is rooted in many traditions, but one of them is emotion research. So Elizabeth Feldman Barrett talks about if you only have two words for what you feel, awesome or crappy, you've got two choices. If you have 50 shades of awesome and 50 shades of crappy, you have 100 choices. And 100 choices is 100 emotions, 100 possibilities, 100 varieties, 100 different ways of being. You have more flexibility, you're less habitual, more creative, more free to, to do different things and be a different person, actually. And you don't even have to find the word you can just come up with your own description that suits how you feel in that moment yeah quite often we go too simple too quick so and we end up being coming fixed so people end up being saying i'm an angry person or people tell you you're an anxious person what's a useful step back is to say there may be something like anxiety in me or something like anger but what i'm feeling right now is my heart is beating really quickly, my stomach is churning historically, I've called that anxiety. Now that's a mouthful. And because it's a mouthful, we default to the unfortunately often pejorative limiting label that we've used. I just want us to say, is this really anxiety? Is this something else? And how do you know it's anxiety? Well, practice it and start looking at, or maybe you get support to do that. And often you need someone to, to reflect it back to you. But that feeling of my heart churning and my belly cramping and my back muscles tweaking, oh, that might be a little bit of excitement in that. So now we've got excitement anxiety, which is different from anxiety. Then we've got excitement anxiety when I'm about to do a presentation so now we've got you know we've got an expanded nuanced version of anxiety and it has a little bit of a positive connotation to it so absolutely come up with long clunky phrases and over time they'll become easier to use and you'll drop into them more effectively and the other thing that might cause anxiety excitement is tickling yeah. and we can't tickle ourselves steve why not 
Yeah, why not? It's never quite dangerous enough, I don't think. Touching is inherently a relational process. And the joy of that is we are relational human beings. We need touch and we exist through touch. Even if touch has been really, really problematic, to give up that, to, to give up touch is a very, very high price to pay. So relational human beings and tickling is one of those games where we learn, hopefully with our parents, that it's safe enough and this delightful game of excitement and pleasure, but it can go over too much and we dissolve into hysterics. My wife hates tickling. So whenever I talk about this, she says, you talk about tickling all the time, but it's actually a really horrible thing and don't ever do it to me. So for her, it wasn't a safe thing. Her dad, I think, went a little bit too far, maybe, or some, you know, at some stage. So it just wasn't a pleasant thing for her. So there's not much tickling in our house, unfortunately. But for ourselves, because we can't replicate that approach, we know that if we do it too light or too much, we're going to stop because we can't make it dangerous. You can have lovely, sensuous experiences with a feather, but it's not the same as a relational process where someone else is just playing with the boundaries of what's a little bit too much. And I, I'm sure some parts of us are way more sensitive to touch than others. When you talk about tickling, I think of feet and a lot of people... <laughs> He's having their feet touched. Do they? Pull them. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you want to, the secrets to making me happy are tickle my ears or tickle my feet. So I, I love my feet being touched. But yes, I, I do understand that non-negotiated touch on the feet can be horrible. And even in a consensual space, being surprised or someone overly doing it on your feet can be really horrible for some people. So yeah, we, we be respectful, but also take some chances sometimes in a, a culture of consent and respect. Mm. Wow. I mean, there's so much in there, Steve. And, you know, it is something that perhaps a lot of us don't think about until it's forced upon us, perhaps unwantingly so. And it's really nice to have this language, I think, around skillful touch and safe touch and not to outlaw touch or make it a taboo. Yeah, for me, that's, you know, I'm a body worker. That's a very powerful identity for me, as I said at the start. So I work with anxiety, pain and trauma. People have been through horrible experiences and I use touch fundamentally at the core of the work I do. And I advertise as a touch therapist. I do a slow, gentle type of touch called craniosacral therapy, or I do uh, something called TRE where I get people shaking and a little bit of touch involved in that. So I'm lucky in that my contract and my advertising people are signing up for the notion of touch. And I do think there's things to pay attention to in talking treatments, which is where most people with trauma, their first stop is like, you need to talk about this. And so it's very hard to shift out of that initial contract and framing of talking about something to moving into the body. And there are sensible, necessary rules about therapists stepping outside of their boundaries and teachers needing to be careful in certain situations. But in that framing of sensible rules, we've lost something. And it's some professions legislate against touch kind of bar you touch is seen as unethical and it's seen as something that's not useful for the therapeutic process. I think uh, I was really joyful for me to discover some really rich writing and, and really thoughtful writing from talking treatment tradition and from the education tradition about how to renegotiate and reown that space and say that touch is a useful thing if we have consent, clear boundaries and clear goals around what we're doing 
and that it can be used for people who are vulnerable and it can be a powerful force for good with the sensible caveats in place. But there is a really strong literature and I've quoted some of the references in, in the book. I, I really, in a short book, I can't do too much around that, but hopefully opening up this debate and saying the automatic assumption that touch is bad in working with people who've been trauma, I hope that I really try and make a case to say this is up for grabs and actually there's a lot of good practice saying that we can rediscover our sense of safety and agency through skillful touch if it's consented and done well. And I think that's a very powerful message. Uh, and it's a strange message still in our culture where some traditions have got so scared of touch and they want to be so safe that they actually throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. Mm. And that is where your book comes in. And I nearly forgot about the book, Steve, again. <laughs> Steve has a series of four books, Anxiety, yeah. Trauma and Pain. And this is the touch one. And What's lovely about these books is they are really short, like you say, but there is graphics to go with it. So it makes for a different reading experience and brings things to life, things that may be difficult to understand, but they bring things to life. Yeah, picture tells a thousand words. I was incredibly fortunate with the artist and she's got this amazing way of representing ideas. But also the goal is saying something simply, but reducing complex ideas to a few core things. And then one of the things about the books is they also have references for people if they want to go on and, and do more reading. So, yeah, it's been a nice project and they've been nicely received and I feel very proud of them. And a nice mix of trying to make things simple, but not simplistic, using imagery to help and references for people who want to inquire a bit more. Brilliant. And I heard an interview that you did that said, I think, 40,000 sales. Yeah, yeah, gosh. Uh, so that's nice. I have best sellers for the publishers. So, yeah, that's great. That's a huge surprise for me and a very joyful thing. It's brilliant. It's great because, honestly, they are well worth purchasing. I get a lot of therapists saying they give them out in their clinics and they or they put one in the... Um, waiting room and they often disappear so they, they, they bolt by ones which is which is really nice for me so yeah brilliant steve how does somebody connect with you if they want to get in touch what's the best way yeah, bodycollege.net is where all my stuff is there's some online courses and things that people can do and just lots of resources i give out lots of information and you can access all the books through bodycollege.net fantastic and you know, I'm going to say when, as I sign out, I hope we stay in touch. And I think this is something that we use a lot. And it's, it is really interesting how touch is so pervasive in our language. So with that, thank you, Steve, for getting in touch with me today. And I hope we continue to remain in touch going forward. And I'm looking forward to seeing whatever comes next from you. Fantastic. Yeah, good luck with the podcast. It's a really nice thing. Well done. Thank you. All right, Steve. Take care. Bye-bye. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves 
their colleagues, their teams and wider organisation. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.